welcome back to The Jacobin Show. As always, I'm your host, Jen Pan. On today's show, I am very excited to be talking to our friend Jared Abbott. He has a piece in the new Jacobin issue with Elizabeth Henderson on American public transportation and basically why it's so awful. Uh, he, he, he and Elizabeth make some great points, so definitely stick around for that. Also from the new issue of Jacobin uh, is a piece by Samir Santi. I will be talking to Samir about inflation. We have obviously covered inflation a few different times on this channel before, um, but Samir, uh, uh, I think, really sort of takes us through uh, basically March when the Fed raised interest rates to what could possibly happen in terms of stagflation or a coming recession. So uh, stay tuned for that talk as well. For my own part, I will be making some comments on a new concept I came across called anti-capitalist investing. Uh, I, I have some thoughts, so <laughs> stick around and, and you'll hear them. Um, and I also want to quickly shout out the new issue of Jacobin. Um, if you're a subscriber, you might have gotten it in the mail already. Jacobin basically just had a big new redesign. The new magazine looks great. And I think the website is undergoing some uh, facelifts and revamps as well. So definitely check that out. It's a great issue. It's all about the politics of infrastructure. Uh, so I encourage you to subscribe to the magazine if you haven't already or pick it up on newsstands. And before I launch into today's show, I also want to quickly shout out a video that recently appeared on this channel. It's a talk between Matt Carp, our friend Matt Carp, and Paul Prescott. You know him as Labor Paul. You probably also know that he recently ran for a state Senate seat in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, he did not win, uh, but he and Matt sort of break down a postmortem of how Paul ran his campaign, uh, what worked and what didn't, what kinds of structural factors Paul was able to overcome, where he felt short. Uh, I really enjoyed the talk. I, I think that it's a really useful look at how, you know, a working class socialist campaign is run. Uh, and I think it has some pretty important lessons for, you know, any any leftist or socialist who is interested in kind of electoral work and running a campaign. Uh, and of course, Paul has some interesting thoughts about um, messaging, which I think I think is really important. We talk a lot about messaging on this show and, you know, with the caveat that obviously messaging isn't everything, uh, it is one of the few things that we can control when we're running campaigns. So I think it's really important to pay attention to. All right. So let's now dive into today's show. Here is Samir Santi. All right, so I'm now here with Samir Santi. He is an assistant professor of urban studies at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies. He also has a new piece in the latest issue of Jacobin on inflation. Samir, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's a pleasure. So inflation, obviously an ongoing problem uh, in the U.S. I think concerns about inflation have sort of dominated public opinion polls over the course of this year, maybe even a little before. Um, we've covered inflation a little bit on the show before, but uh, just to dive into your piece, I was wondering if maybe you could sort of talk about the causes of inflation. Uh, what exactly is going on right now? Sure. Um, I mean, I think if you're going to talk about Inflation right now, you have to start with the pandemic a couple of years ago. Um, supply chains as a term that maybe wasn't in you know the popular discourse a few years ago, but now everyone knows what they are. Mm -hmm. It got disrupted during the pandemic, um, and that was bound to create a lot of problems. I mean, shutting down a global economy is an unprecedented event, um, and restarting it's not going to be smooth. It, you know, we maybe should have expected this um, 
at the outset, but but many of us didn't. Um, in any case, now looking back, it's clear that that's where this all started. Of course, it's been intensified recently by what's going on in Ukraine with and you know the reverberations of you know energy markets from there, and now a potential food crisis, and so on. But this is really, I mean, to to put it in a word, this is a supply issue um, mm-hmm. and not a demand issue, um, as I think you know some conservatives and and many neoliberal economists would suggest. So um, I, I, I want to talk now about what the response to inflation has been, because obviously, you know, back in March, uh, the Fed had their meeting and they decided to raise interest rates. Um, how, how have inflation and, you know, by extension, the economy changed since then, if they have at all? And, you know, the Fed is obviously talking about raising interest rates again. What is going to be the consequence of another rate hike? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, you know, if we knew the answer, we could probably make a lot of money betting on it. But um, I mean, it, you know, the, the the short answer is the reason that the Fed raises interest rates to combat inflation is with the intention to slow the economy down, generate unemployment and thereby hopefully, in their mind, reduce the inflationary pressure. Now, this presumes that the source of the pressure is demand, right? Excess Mm -hmm. demand, workers' bargaining power, and so on. Um, But the reality over the last few months is that workers' real wages, which is, you know, their wages adjusted for inflation, have been declining. So this isn't a wage price spiral that's been set off by Biden's economic policy. This is, again, a supply-side issue. And the Fed's traditional um, policy response, which is, again, raising interest rates, can't get at that. Um, it, it, it can create a recession. It can slow the economy down, increase unemployment, but it can't get at the underlying cause of the inflation. Now, this isn't this isn't to say that this is what's definitely going to happen. The Fed has moved somewhat gingerly, though they seem to be getting a little bit more hawkish as the weeks pass. And the question is going to be how hawkish they get. And there are more hawkish forces on the Fed and less hawkish forces. And Jerome Powell, who again, was a, was a Trump appointee who has been reappointed by Biden, um, started out somewhat cautious and is getting more and more militant about trying to control it. So the question is how far they go. If they go far, then I think we could very well see a downturn in the next you know, year or even months. Um, if they continue to move gingerly out of concern for the effects on the economy as a whole, then we might not. But um, I think the, the point is that the Fed responds to inflation by basically taking it out on workers, trying to undermine workers' bargaining power, trying to slow things down to generate unemployment um, and thereby address it. And this is not the kind of inflation that that'll work with. Um, so that's that's where things stand. And, and it's not a great outlook. I, I think something else that that is interesting is we've started to hear a number of growing concerns that the U.S. might soon experience stagflation uh, as it did in the 1970s. So maybe talk a little bit about um, what exactly stagflation is, how it played out in the 1970s. And then obviously, you know, the follow up is, is it likely that we could see this again? Sure. Um, so stagflation is kind of an obscure term. It was coined in the you know late 60s and got gained purchase in the 70s. And it, it, it referred to this phenomenon that occurred during the 70s of, of slowing down economic growth, recession at a certain point, rising unemployment and inflation, the coincidence of those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, the mainstream story, and, and I, I don't think this is actually 
you know, borne out in the historical record. And we could talk about that perhaps. But the mainstream story is that in, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s under the Johnson and Nixon administrations, there was a presumption and this that this came this came out of, you know, Keynesianism in the post-war period, Keynesianism being kind of the dominant economic macroeconomic theory of the post-war period that you could that there was some kind of trade off between inflation and unemployment and that you could target a certain level of unemployment and try to reduce it if you were willing to tolerate a bit of inflation. Um, the, you know, the reality is that no, very few economists ever really believed that there was a strict trade-off. Most unions didn't believe there was a strict trade-off. It wasn't as universally held as a belief as it's, as it's now presented. But that's the story. And the story, again, the mainstream story goes that under the Johnson and Nixon administrations, um, unemployment was targeted at a very low level uh, and at an irresponsibly low level, as you know, some like Milton Friedman would say. And this had this were a lot of reasons why this was the case. One was Vietnam, the need to you know spend to produce military armaments for Vietnam. The other was just basically you know electoral calculations, trying to get unemployment as low as they could before the 1968 and 72 elections. And the story that Milton Friedman, for instance, who was a you know right wing economist at the University of Chicago, the story that he popularized was that this irresponsible macroeconomic policy set in motion an inflation. The inflation then raised expectations among everyone, workers, businesses, consumers, and so on, that inflation was going to continue. This led work, workers and businesses to bid up wages and prices and, and set off a wage price spiral that got out of control. And, you know, once it was out of control and once inflation was out of control, businesses were reluctant to invest. Um, They're worried about, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the air. And so the propensity to invest drops and that leads to an economic slowdown. And so now you've got recession and inflation going on at the same time. Um, you know, the reality, I think, is a lot more complex than that. Uh, this is somewhat of an ideological interpretation of what happened. Really, I think if, you know, what economists at the time, what unions at the time and, and still today were pointing out was that the inflation of the 70s was principally driven by supply shocks, mm. an oil crisis that began in 1973 due to, you know, the OPEC embargo, a food crisis, other things as well, like the, the dollar was devalued, was taken off gold in 1971. Um, there was a, a worldwide productivity slowdown that began in the late 1960s, a bunch of complex dynamics that were wound up in part with sort of the structure of capitalism and part with random contingent events um, led to the inflation to, to take off. And, and once inflation, you know, a supply side inflation like that can very well, as people then understood, coincide with un economic underperformance. This has nothing to do, again, with demand. You could have an oil price spike that leads prices of everything to start rising while the economy is not doing very well. Um, and I think that is the most relevant part of the 1970s experience for what we're going through right now. Um, you know, the, the way that that all played out is and through the 70s, there's a debate over this, you know, what's causing this? And 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 there was a reluctance to overreact to it with excessive, um, you know, austerity, though there was a fair amount of austerity through the 70s. You know, Paul Volcker, who's the chair of the Fed in the late 70s, is most infamous for Im imposing a really harsh monetary austerity in, you know, 1979. But even right. earlier, 1974, their interest rates were, you know, double digits. And in the late 60s, interest rates climbed pretty high as well. So, you know, they were it wasn't like this was some reckless 
uh, macroeconomic expansion that was allowed to get out of control. There was austerity, but the notion that you could try to combat this with a brute force dose of monetary medicine um, was was not not widely accepted through much of the 70s. So there were forces who were arguing for it. It's not until 1979 when Jimmy Carter, who's you know a Democrat, appoints Paul Volcker to lead the Federal Reserve, and Paul Volcker at least for a time, embraces the Friedman argument. Um, I'm not sure that he ever really believed it, but he understood its utility uh, and raised interest rates to, you know, close to 20 percent. And that triggered a deep, deep recession um, in, you know, 1980-81, from which, you know, working people here have never really recovered. That set off a debt crisis abroad. And and that's how it was resolved. So that's the story of the 70s. In terms of, I mean, to answer your question about whether it's whether we could see that again today, I think, again, the lesson that supply shocks can create stagflation or can lead to something like stagflation is the really relevant kernel of that story. And, you know, we've obviously seen some supply shocks. I think we may be in or entering a world in which these could be more common with Mm -hmm. climate crises, weather events, ongoing pandemics, geopolitical tensions that disrupt trade relations and so on. So it's, it's certainly possible that we could be entering a stagflationary environment, but, but not for the reasons that, you know, someone like Larry Summers, for instance, right. might might say. Yeah. Well, well, I do want to ask you about uh, the possibility of recession also, because, you know, I'm sure you've seen the news lately. Uh, plenty of billionaires, I think, you know, Elon Musk, Jamie Dimon among them have have basically indicated that they believe a serious recession is just around the corner. Uh, Elon Musk famously said he, quote, has a bad feeling. Uh, so, <laughs> so should we have a bad feeling? Should we be concerned? And then like as a follow up, obviously, a, a recession means something totally different for billionaires than it does for like everybody else. So yeah. what exactly? would a post-pandemic recession look like for most working people? Yeah, well, again, predictions are tough, right? And uh, and so it's hard to say, but I think given the way that... So recessions happen under capitalism, right? Capitalism is a cyclical... um, There is a system that, that, that operates through cycles. So recessions always happen during capitalism. The question is when they happen, how severe they are, and what what causes them. Um, Right now, I think we need to think about a potential recession in terms of the agent that would actively create that. And that's, again, the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. It's, it certainly is possible, again, given that inflation is stemming from supply issues and can only really be alleviated through supply measures. Um, it's likely to persist. I mean, it, it may not. It may, it may decline some, but the, the risk of a persistent inflation is certainly greater than what we thought it was a year ago. And that, as long as the Federal Reserve's response to that is through a tight monetary policy, right, raising interest rates, a recession is is I would say likely. Um, now, again, the question is whether they choose to pursue that course, given the risks that they very well understand as well. Um, and, and that's an open question. And, and, you know, they're kind of a black box and it's hard to say. But it does seem based on, you know, the way that they're what they're projecting, um, that they are intending to get only more hawkish on this. So so we could well see one. Now, what, what does that mean? Of course, it, you know, it, it, it means um, billionaires might see a little a little haircut in their asset you know, in their wealth in terms of measured by asset values. But what it means for working people is unemployment, right? It means that this this somewhat remarkable recovery in terms of job job growth and wage growth that we've seen over the last year um, would be 
would be reversed. Um, how severe it, it gets depends on how harsh the uh, policy reaction is in the first place. But, uh, you know, working people always bear the brunt of it. Um, and, and, you know, recessions not only result in unemployment, but they also place budgetary strain on state and local governments, which are, you know, as we learned in, in the last crisis and after 2008, typically responded to with austerity there, which only worsens the pain. So that's mm -hmm. that's the unfortunate reality of what we're looking at, given right. the tools on offer. So maybe then um, I, I want to wrap up with kind of a political question, because as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the issue of inflation has been dominating public opinion polls. Um, it seems like it could very well shape the upcoming midterm elections. So uh, I, I also saw recently that Joe Biden uh, talked about fighting inflation by trying to reduce the federal deficit. So I guess the last question for you is like, how would Democrats ideally respond to the ongoing problem of inflation and the threat of a coming recession, especially as as you know, we're coming up to midterms. Yeah, it's a it's this is kind of the million dollar question. The budget deficit point is an important one, right? The the, the standard toolkit is we, we talk about the Federal Reserve a lot and tight monetary policy, but the other side of that is a is a um, fiscal retrenchment, right? Reductions in federal spending. The, the idea being that budget deficits result in inflation, and that's a complicated topic that is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. But that that's where that's coming from. That's sort of older orthodoxy. Um, the the ideal response and you know as as you know those of us who are committed to working class politics those of us on the left um i think need to think about inflation always first and foremost as a as a broadly political issue but specifically as a class issue you know a distributional question um inflation well the prevention or control of inflation let's say always requires limiting certain kinds of claims on income, which is a somewhat abstract thing to say. But what that means to just unpack it a little bit is either wages have to be limited or profits have to be limited. One of those two things has to happen. And over the last few decades, inflation has been prevented largely through suppression of wages, right? We've had wage stagnation for a long time. We haven't seen much consumer price inflation over the last few decades. The last time in the late 1970s, inflation was brought down through really harsh repression of working class power. So the alternative is, well, could we think about controlling profits? Now, and there are ways to do that. You know, in the immediate term, things like an excess profit tax are on the table. Sanders has endorsed that. Um, Elizabeth Warren's introduced something, you know, price gouging bill. Um, people are talking about price controls as another option. These are all ways to get at the underlying, you know, class question and place the burden of inflation control on, you know, on capital. The, 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 I think we have to, and those are all things that, you know, we should be, I think, fighting for. But the, the next step there is if we were to control profits, right? If we were to limit profits and try to manage inflation through a limitation on profits, you do have to confront the question of what comes next. Insofar as profits in some ways lead to investment, right? We live in a capitalist society in which business profits lead to investment to some degree. If you suppress profits, you're likely to see some kinds, some shortages in certain areas um, and perhaps, you know, under investment that, that generates unemployment. And that, that's, that's something that I think we need to reckon with. The question is what we would want to do with that. And that raises the question of the state, the public sector stepping in and doing more to provide basic necessities, doing more to plan investment, to take control over investment out of the hands of private economic actors and, you know, democratizing that 
function. Um, and now we're talking about capitalism as we know it, right? So I think the real way to think about inflation is not just some technical issue that we got to figure out how to manage, but something that raises the really big questions about the political economy that we want to have um, and, and, you know, who controls it in whose interests. All right. Well, again, Samir's piece is in the latest issue of Jacobin. We will link that below. Samir, thank you so much for your time. Good to see you. Thanks so much, Jen. All right. So I'll be back in a minute with my thoughts on uh, a new wave of so-called anti-capitalist investing. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in June and get your first month free. This month's selections are Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Freedom by Ben Tarnoff, A Radical Manifesto for Fixing the Internet by Deprivatizing It, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, A Historical Biography Based on the Hugely Popular Podcast Series, Humanitarian Borders, Unequal Mobility and Saving Lives by Polly Pallister Wilkins, An Interrogation of the Politics of Humanitarian Responses to Border Violence and unequal mobility. The Future is Degrowth, a guide to a world beyond capitalism, a manifesto arguing against the ideology of growth, and, without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown, an indispensable guide to building a fighting feminist movement for reproductive freedom. Become a member today at versobooks.com. So I recently came across a new article on, quote, anti-capitalist investing. According to the piece, a, quote, small but growing number of wealthy people are seeking a more radical approach to investing. Some call it the seemingly contradictory term anti-capitalist investing. Others refer to it as, quote, transformative investing. In general, proponents are going beyond merely disincentivizing unethical behavior in companies. They're trying to shift more of the balance of financial power into the hands of the working class, transforming an economic system that they believe has unjustly given just a few people control over majority of capital. Some investors want to spend down their wealth through anti-capitalist investing, while others still want to get a return on their investment, but make sure these investments are into ventures they feel promote social justice. Many of these bold new anti-capitalist investors hail from a group called Resource Generation, which has been the subject of many, many glowing profiles in the media over the past few years. The group, which describes itself as, quote, young people with wealth and class privilege in the US, appears to be made up of the most enlightened rich people in the world. On their site, you can find enthusiastic support for reparations, pledges to pay rent to Native American tribes for being on their land, and talk of community care and mutual aid. According to their mission statement, they seek to, quote, transform the philanthropic sector towards redistribution rather than charity. But the problem with these new, supposedly radical and unconventional philanthropists is that their very model of so-called redistribution, no matter how dressed up in social justice language it is, and no matter how guilty these people feel about their money, entrenches the power of the capitalist class rather than breaking it. So first, some background. Our current philanthropic system was born, surprise, surprise, during the first Gilded Age, when industrial robber barons started charitable foundations in order to stave off brewing social unrest and deflect attention from how they had amassed their giant fortunes in the first place. These Gilded Age charities directed some money towards solving the social ills of the day, while of course also conveniently serving as tax shelters for their wealthy founders. Now, the new generation of so-called anti-capitalist investors have been eager to insist that they're nothing like these bad old philanthropists. 
After all, some of them want to give away their entire fortunes. They support Black-led and Native-led organizing. They use phrases like systemic change and racial capitalism and say they're, quote, working in solidarity with poor and working class people. However, there are some fundamental ways in which their radical new philanthropy ends up looking quite a lot like the philanthropy of the robber barons. First and foremost is this. Private philanthropy of any kind runs against and even undermines democracy. That's because the public has no say over how philanthropic funds are used. Instead, elite donors and small boards of trustees decide how foundations and nonprofits alike spend their money, which of course means that wealthy individuals and organizations, from Mackenzie Scott to George Soros to the Ford Foundation to even, yes, resource generation, are able to exert undue influence on politics and public life by directing vast sums of money toward causes they deem noble, without any input or oversight whatsoever from average voters or the vast majority of working people. What's more is that philanthropy functions as yet another tax advantage for the wealthy. Every time an anti-capitalist investor funnels his or her money into a foundation or nonprofit or makes a tax-deductible donation, they're effectively reducing their own tax burden and, by extension, reducing funding for actual public goods like infrastructure, social services, and public education. According to one estimate, philanthropic institutions' tax breaks cost the U.S. around $50 billion in lost tax revenue each year. So in other words, these young anti-capitalist investors might be creating or donating to slightly different charities and nonprofit organizations than their parents, but at the end of the day, the very nature of philanthropic giving keeps the money they're theoretically trying to, quote, redistribute very far from actual public control. And finally, the entire project of anti-capitalist investing obscures the foundations of our deeply unequal economy. To put it bluntly, some guilty rich people deciding to give away all the money in their trust funds won't actually do anything to transform the capitalist system that made them or their families rich in the first place because it won't change the fact that under capitalism, the vast majority of us create wealth through our labor while a small number of capitalists capture that wealth as profit. If one capitalist benevolently decides to stop exploiting his or her workers or gives away all their money, their business will, of course, cease to function and another capitalist will simply take their place. This illustrates the shortcomings of a certain type of enthusiasm for redistribution that has grown over the past few years. For one thing, these days redistribution seems to mean literally anything liberals want it to, from mutual aid to interpersonal Venmo reparations to supposed radical philanthropy. But none of these instances of so-called redistribution change our dependence on the market. Actually moving toward a more democratic economy or achieving, quote, an equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power, as resource generation likes to put it, means decommodifying necessities like housing, expanding public ownership of energy and other utilities, heavily regulating the business and financial sector, and drastically increasing taxes on the wealthy. In any case, I think it goes without saying that we should be very, very wary of anyone claiming that capitalist class do-gooders are going to lead us to a fairer economic system. An advisor who works for the self-described anti-capitalist wealth management firm Cordata told Vox, quote, Sometimes when we use the language of anti-capitalist investing, people say it's a paradox. I think that comes from a place of people believing that there's no real alternative to capitalism. Make no mistake, there is an alternative to capitalism, but it won't be ushered in by the self-flagellating children of the rich or their radical philanthropy schemes. 
All right, so I am now joined by Jared Abbott. He is a contributor to Jacobin and co-author with Elizabeth Henderson of a great piece in the new issue of Jacobin. That is titled American Exceptionalism Off the Rails. It's about the sad state of U.S. public transportation, which is what we'll be talking to Jared about today. Jared, good to see you. Hey, how's it going? So as I mentioned, you wrote a great piece with Elizabeth Henderson uh, talking about public transportation in the U.S., which we all know is notoriously awful uh, and downright non-existent in many parts of the country. Um, I, and I think, you know, it, it's we might be tempted to kind of chalk that up to just underfunding and austerity. Uh, but something that you guys point out in your piece is that the U.S. actually pours billions of dollars into transportation, uh, into public transportation. And um, I, I want to get into why that doesn't really seem to be bearing out or why, you know, despite pouring all this money into uh, the public transportation infrastructure, our public transit still sucks. Uh, but but I, I want to start with a little bit of the history first. So you guys argue that the roots of America's public transportation are, you know, this ongoing public transportation dysfunction stretches back to at least the 1950s. Uh, what, what set the stage here? Yeah, right. So Basically, after you know World War II, we we know there was a huge expansion in uh, you know, suburban uh, construction. You know, people building uh, single-family homes uh, for the first time, the rise of the suburbs, and in conjunction with that was a big push by uh, you know car manufacturers and by uh, many other uh, related industries to expand highway production. And as we're, uh, many of us are aware, when we see those signs uh, that say Eisenhower on the, uh, you know, on the interstate highway system, uh, Eisenhower uh, during the 1950s uh, was able to pass the Interstate Federal Aid uh, Highway Act, which basically poured tons and tons of money into, you know, building what is now the interstate highway system in the United States. And that basically led to a de-emphasis, a de-emphasis on other kinds of, uh, or on public transit, on rails and on uh, buses, et cetera, and to a much stronger emphasis on developing infrastructure, uh, road infrastructure and highway infrastructure. And we've basically been there ever since. We've seen uh, increasing public, uh, well, strong public support, strong political support for uh, expanding uh, roads and highways and, and relatively little for expanding uh, subways and expanding uh, bus systems outside of some you know major uh, urban uh, hubs so it basically started as, as a as a point in the 1950s when we as a country uh you know we we love our uh, individualism we love our cars and that is what essentially led us down the path of highways over other kinds of uh, public transit so to go back to the question of, you know, the money that the U.S. is spending on public transit, uh, why exactly does it end up being at once so costly and, and drawn out, but at the same time so inefficient in the U.S.? Right. So the first part of the story that I told you is, I mean, that's pretty commonsensical. People, you know, probably have a sense of, uh, you know, we invested so much in highways and we invested less in, in infrastructure. But as you rightly pointed out earlier, it's not that we don't spend anything on public transit. Uh, and, and in fact, the infrastructure bill that uh, that Congress passed last year I, included something like $38 billion for the expansion of public transit. And many cities, uh, well, big cities that have large uh, public transit systems like Los Angeles and New York, you know, they have indeed spent billions and billions of dollars on public transit. But it turns out that in the U.S., we tend to spend money on public transit 
in a really inefficient way. So, you know, we, in the piece we compare, as we'll probably talk about in a little bit, you know, what's the state of public transit spending in the U.S. versus uh, Spain, for instance, and we see that Spain spends multiple times less money uh, per rail or per station, per mile of rail or per station than we do in the U.S. And there's a number of, there's no obvious, there's no one single reason why that's the case, but, but there's a number of sort of like compounded or uh, interlocking reasons why that's the case according to people that we interviewed for, for, for the piece. And that, so I'll just say a few of them. One is basically um, construction is really inefficient because we don't do public transit enough to have a surplus or to have enough qualified managers and technicians to be able to efficiently uh, produce these rail systems. And so for instance, you know, a couple of people pointed out to us that, you know, much of the construction work that's done in the U.S. is done by contractors uh, who are the sort of outsourced experts in how to and how to build things, uh, how to build public transit. And many of the managers, the public uh, sector or the public utility managers uh, that, that are involved in overseeing these processes just simply don't have the technical expertise to oversee these projects in an efficient or an effective way so that oftentimes things get built or review processes are carried out that don't need to be carried out, but there's nobody there in the, you know, at the helm uh, with the technical expertise to make sure that that money doesn't get wasted. And there's also uh, many ways in which we we're not able to utilize as sort of cutting edge labor practices or in, 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 in staffing procedures um, and, and technological advances that are commonplace in other parts of the world. But we just don't have the, the literal experience uh, in the U.S. because it, our, our, it might be decades in between, you know, when when one subway line is built and when the next one is. And so we just don't keep up in the way that they do in, say, many parts of Europe. And, and, and that, that leads to the even bigger problem, which is just delays. Mm -hmm. When you don't have when you have inefficient production, you have many delays in the process. And when there are delays, that means that you have to keep paying all the workers that are laying idle. You have to keep uh, paying for all the equipment that you're renting, which is not being used or is not being used very efficiently. And this just means that projects in the U.S. get carried out at a much, much, much slower pace. And because it's slower, it also is much, much more slow or excuse me, expensive. Mm -hmm. and, and, and related to that is this idea that um, another issue that drives up costs and drives up delays, which is we have a very, very, very decentralized system of making decisions about, about projects in the U.S. For, for, for infrastructure. And so every interested community group, every interested uh, jurisdiction, so there might be many, many different political jurisdictions, towns, municipalities, states, involved in a single project and each of them in order to get on board with a project they have to be convinced and often being convinced means you know that we have to increase the you know the cost of the project by saying well if you if you go along with this project we'll build a couple of new schools in your area or we'll you know we'll you know do x or y thing many of those things might be really useful and important but they do drive up the cost of these projects and so we have this really, really baroque decision-making process. We have very, very, very arcane, highly complex oversight mechanisms, which make it easy for people that want to delay a project. Say you're a wealthy community in an area that doesn't want to see, a, you know, a construction project or a train station built in your in your neighborhood. There's many, many things you can do given the arcane decision-making system that we have to 
gum up the works, uh, essentially, to try to delay projects or to stop them from happening altogether. And as we talked about in the piece, those sorts of mechanisms uh, for delaying projects don't exist to the same extent in other countries, mm -hmm. which is another reason why they don't spend so much on mm -hmm. public transit. Yeah, so you had mentioned specifically Spain as a country that gets way more bang for its buck when it comes to, you know, what it spends on public transit and and what the results are. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about what their public transit system looks like, because you guys opened your piece with like a great anecdote about how, how well it runs. Uh, and you also mentioned that, you know, citizens really like the public transportation system. So how did, how did Spain achieve their public transit system? Yeah, so uh, basically, yeah, in the piece we talk about this, this woman who was an exchange student, I think in like Erasmus or, or something like that, who had come from New York and, and Spain, and she, she wrote home a couple weeks after being there like, oh my God, the subways are so amazing here. I haven't seen a single rat. You know, there hasn't been a single delay. It's like, this is glorious. Um, and so just, you know, this one person having experienced both New York and Spain, just, you know, overnight, uh, having first witnessed the system in Spain, sees that it's just you know, much cleaner, much more efficient. Uh, it's just obvious to her. Um, and basically what's happened in Spain and particularly in the Madrid area um, is that there was a huge boom in, in, in construction of rails. One of the fastest uh, and most aggressive increase in, in, in rail, commuter rail production of any place in, in, in the world uh, in, during the 1990s and 2000s, which, uh, you know, created hundreds and hundreds of miles of of new of new rail and, and subways and light rail, um, which you know dramatically transformed the the landscape of, of public transit and access to public transit in Madrid and, and in uh, other areas in the country. And not only were they able to dramatically expand rails, uh, they were able to do it at a much 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 lower cost. So you know, the, I think we we cite a figure which is something like the per the per mile rail cost of, of Madrid's. Uh, dramatic expansion in the 90s and 2000s was something like 141 million. Whereas if you compare that to the per mile cost of of, of rails in, in in say Los Angeles, uh, it's something like nearly 500 million. So we're talking about you know multiple times more uh, per, per per rail, mm -hmm. and it, it and to get a lot more of it uh, in the process. And and this has meant that since the rail system has been expanded effectively, a lot more people have access to it. Uh, a lot more people use it. Only 5% of Americans use uh, public transit, and that's mainly because they don't have access to it. None of it exists right. in their area. And whereas in Spain, as a result of this massive increase in access, uh, three or four times uh, the number of uh, the percentage of Spaniards uh, use public transit compared to Americans. And when more of them use it, uh, you know, more of them are going to think that it's important and something that they value because, you know, they actually have had the opportunity to use it. And so in Spain, a couple of surveys that we found showed that in Madrid, something like 70% of respondents said in a recent survey that they would support increased spending on public transit in Madrid. Whereas a survey, similar surveys that have been conducted in different parts of the United States have found something between, which actually I found to be high, higher than I expected, like 30 to 40 percent mm -hmm. of, of, of folks said that, you know, they, they thought there should be more spending on public transit. And, it, it, and it's kind of ironic because we need it so much more here. Right. Uh, but, but it's this sort of like vicious circle where you yeah. get more of it. It works better. People like it. They want more of it. Whereas here we don't get it at all. People don't like it. They don't think it works, but it's mainly because we've never really tried. 
So that's, you know, part of the story as well. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about uh, American, American, you know, sentiment on public transportation, because that was another interesting piece of uh, your article. And I think what you show is that they're kind of like, uh, there, there's some ambivalence, right? So like, if you ask Americans, like, do you do you support public transportation? Would you like to see more of it? Like, I think you guys found that like, lots of people say yes. But at the same time, like, as you just pointed out, when it comes to these questions about funding and expanding, like things start to get a little more mixed. So I think that you're right that it is a kind of vicious cycle. Um, but I, I'm wondering, how does America public opinion um, sort of shape or affect what kinds of public transit projects we see uh, in the U.S. today, if, if it does? Well, I mean, that is a good question, and I don't have a perfect answer for it. But it, to the extent that you know, I, could, I could say, given the interviews that we've done and some of the reports that we've read for this piece, it seems as though um, there, there isn't Public transit is not a highly salient political issue mm. uh, in the United States. In most places, there are exceptions, like New York, mm-hmm. uh, where the, you know there's a high density of public transit. But even in places like New York, it's it's very uncommon for politicians to make that a centerpiece of their of their political program. Mm-hmm. And based on the interviews that we've done, like 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 there's not like in Bogota, Colombia, for instance, there have been mayors, uh, you know, who have in the recent past, like literally called themselves like you know, the, the, you know, the public transit mayor or something very close to that. You right. know, it's been, it's been a central issue, the expansion of the public transit line. And that's also true in, in many other cities in, in different parts of the world. Uh, and, but here, politicians don't want to talk about it because they're really worried that, you know, it's going to get the projects are going to get delayed, that it's going to be much more expensive than they anticipate, which it always is. And the only thing that the public is going to notice is all the delays, all the increased costs. People, if people know anything about public transit in, in New York, they know all the horror stories about the Second Avenue line yep. and how it ended up being like a gajillion dollars more than anybody said. And it took like, you know, Moses's life to, to, to get it done. Right. Um, and so politicians have no incentive to, to, to champion public transportation. And as we know, public sentiment is often driven by what politicians actually uh, go out and say matters, right? right. Uh, elites drive public opinion a lot of the time. And so since po- politicians don't want to touch it most of the time, it's not a salient political issue. And furthermore, most people in the United States have cars and they don't mm-hmm. use public transit. They don't have access to it. So they don't have a sense of, uh, oh yeah, we really, we really need more of it because where it does exist, it doesn't really work very well. And where it doesn't exist, it doesn't even really occur to people as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a really difficult situation for public transit in the United States because uh, there's not a lot of support for it. And, and there's not a lot of reason to hope that in the short term, uh, politicians are going to have much of a reason to increase their focus on public transit in many parts of the country. Right. So I guess then the kind of million dollar question is like, what can we do to sort of begin to break this vicious cycle of, you know, low public transit usage, uh, you know, then sort of fueling or like bleeding into these costly and inefficient public transit projects, which take a long time and like further suppress public opinion on public transit. And then, you know, like like you've been talking about this like little, this like sort of a lack of public interest in funding public transportation in the U.S. Like, is there anything that, you know, I don't know, we can do to start to begin to chip away at that vicious cycle? I mean, just maybe Bernie Sanders running for president again (laughs) uh, might help. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Although that would be helpful. Um, You know, some of the things that people said in the piece, uh, you know, you know, in our interviews for the piece were, 
you know, sort of smaller technical things like that would probably help to decrease costs, which and decrease the time it takes to produce uh, public transit, uh, which in turn might make people think that public transit works a little better and might make them think that, uh, you know, there should be more of it. So, for instance, things like uh, addressing some of the, you know, the, the extraordinary ease of, of, of bringing lawsuits around around public transit mm-hmm. projects. Um, public comment is really, really good. And obviously in a democracy, we need ways for ordinary people to intervene, to hold politicians accountable. But in the U.S., uh, it, it's so easy to co-opt public comment periods uh, for, you know, in, in the interest of a, of a relatively uh, small and often pretty you know wealthy or influential uh, community group that wants to shape a public works project in their own uh, interests. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find ways to sort of streamline decision-making processes and make it so that it's not so easy to uh, basically co-opt, uh, you know, public decision-making processes in the interest of, 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 of elites, essentially. Um, and, you know, the, the people that we've interviewed, you know, they have relatively technical uh, ways that, that that might be done. So, so there's some smaller type fixes. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the, this is a really long term problem because mm-hmm. it, it's a matter of changing, uh, you know, some of the basic orientations that Americans have, uh, which allow some of these some of these uh, outcomes to occur. You know, like one of the people that we interviewed talked to, he said, look, one of the things that and this was not a, you know, a rabid socialist that we talked to or anything like that. He just said, look, in the U.S., we value things differently than they do in other countries. And a lot of Americans, you know, they have an emphasis on individual liberties, private property rights and the like, which makes it harder uh, for uh, people that want to invest more in in changing these systems to make them uh, more rational, to make them uh, a little bit more streamlined and so that we can expand access to them to more people. It's really, really hard to do that uh, given, given not only the culture of the U.S., but also this sort of path-dependent historical process we've been talking about where mm-hmm. Americans have just uh, gotten to a point of relatively low satisfaction. So I think what it's really going to come down to is, you know, the sort of slow process of, uh, you know, having successful projects in, in certain places, you know, that can sort of shine a light on the value of, of public transit and make more people interested in, in expanding access. It's also going to require uh, having more visionary uh, politicians get elected as mayors and as, as governors in, in more states and putting this on the political agenda uh, so that they can try to shape public opinion around this issue more. It's going to require, you know, stronger levels of uh, organization uh, of progressives, of socialists, of, of, of labor unions to get around uh, projects to expand access to public transit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're only at the sort of beginning of that process and it's a daunting one, uh, you know, that faces all the same sorts of challenges that you know, we as progressives and socialists, uh, you know, face in terms of getting any major uh, progressive public policy, uh, you know, passed in the United States right now. And it's pretty unfavorable political context. So it's going to be a long term process. But, you know, it's something that needs to be talked more about, I think, on the left. And, uh, you know, we need to sort of start to explore more creative uh, possible solutions and ways of organizing around it. Yeah. So I, I think to wrap up, um, I do want to ask you this. So we, I, we've been sort of talking from the assumption that public transportation is a good thing and we want more of it. But like, 
I don't know, like, should we just let America be a car country? Uh, should, you know, should we should we uh, just just let everybody have our cars? I mean, I live in a very like car based city right now. Uh, there are definitely some perks to that. Uh, what is good, actually, about public transportation or why can't we just be a car country? I mean, look, don't get me wrong. When I got my first car when I was <laughs> 16, I really liked it, too. I liked being able what, to what was your car, Jared? It was it was a. It's an old blue station wagon from like the 80s. I had a flaming peace sign uh, that my yeah. friend put Was it a Volvo? It, it was uh, Oldsmobile, <laughs> I think. It was, uh-huh. it, it was great. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but, but the problem is, as we all know, that it's not sustainable uh, ecologically for us to have, you know, a system of transit that, that relies so heavily on uh, fossil fuel usage and that relies so heavily on, on automobiles as a result. And not only that, you know, many places in the in the United States, people, you know, they don't have access to, uh, you know, they don't have a car and they, or if they do, you know, it's expensive to maintain when it breaks down. They don't they can't get to work. Uh, you know, they can't, uh, you know, get the services that they need because there's no alternative to a car in so many different parts of the country, especially where I live in, this, in, the, in the deep south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, this just basically puts an undue additional burden on basically poor and working people that you know don't just have unlimited access to automobile transportation uh, you know that most middle class people uh, just take for granted. That's not the reality for millions of Americans. And as a result, not having strong public transportation access it's just another one of the built-in inequalities in our system that disadvantages poor and working people. You didn't even mention high gas prices. I don't know. I don't know what they're like where you're living, but um. oh my god, of course, yes. <laughs> put it on the put it on the pile. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, again, Jared Abbott is a contributor to Jacobin. His latest article is "American Exceptionalism Off the Rails." That's in the new issue of Jacobin, and we will link that below. Jared, good to see you, and thanks for your time. Okay, thanks so much. I appreciate it.